and welcome back to Esbat a Bookish podcast. I'm Elle. And I'm Reggie. And we're joined today by horror reader and writer J.M. Sedlock. Hi. Hello. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. And the book we're discussing is The Haunting of Hill House, um, which most people, yeah. I would hope, are familiar with if you're listening to this. Um, so The Haunting of Hill House, if you aren't familiar, is about a group of people who go to this allegedly haunted building um, as part of an ev- investigation into the hauntings. The book centres around Ellen Vance, um, who has just lost her mother, um, and she's joined by Dr John Montague, who's the main investigator, Theodora, who is another young woman in the house and Luke who's the young heir to the house um so to start with then JM why did you choose this book uh so Shirley Jackson is my favorite author like of all time Uh, and I actually wrote my uh senior thesis slash capstone in college on the haunting of hill house uh, because a lot of what I studied was finding queer representation in classic literature. And Eleanor, to me, is very much an archetypal closeted lesbian. <laughs> and so I, for my thesis, kind of dived into that. And it's always just been one of my favorite books of hers. Uh, I reread it like every year and it's 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 very special to me. Yeah. Okay, fab. Um yeah, and that's the one thing that stood out when I read it as well, um, was Eleanor and Theo um, Nell in the book. Yes. Which I'm I'm just very grateful that Nell fell out of fashion as a nickname for Eleanor. <laughs> um, but yeah, Eleanor and Theo, and the way Theo is written, it's so good. It's so everything to her is almost subtext, but it's enough that you can pick it up. Yeah, like she's she's very much a foil to Eleanor, but uh, like looking at her, I also wrote about her as like the template for the bisexual menace trope. Like yeah. you know, she flirts with men and women. She uh, spurns lovers that she doesn't like. She walks away from conversations or situations that bore her. Uh, she's very uh, charming, but also flighty. Uh, very much a foil to Eleanor and very bisexual yeah and even her just her presence challenges Eleanor um and the way like you said because they're so different Mm -hmm. and she's very much trying to like Eleanor is very much in a situation where for the first time in her life she has these freedoms and opportunities and Theo almost represents that in a way that scares her Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, and then you've got, of course, Luke, the heir, who, uh, like you said, Theo flirts with him as well, which puts Eleanor kind of takes her flirting and then doesn't like it when she sees her and Luke engaging in that. Oh, yeah. Um, Luke is such an interesting character to me because for a lot of the book, you're kind of wondering, like, why is he here other than like his explicitly stated purpose, which is to have a member of the uh, Crane family? Or is it? Sorry, I've also seen the Netflix adaptation and they changed 
some yeah. of the names. Okay, yeah, it's it's Crane in the book. To have a member of the, the Crane family uh, in the house. But then once he starts having this relationship with Theodore, and also, more broadly, the entire time, Eleanor is kind of play-acting at being a family. And in that scenario, Luke is kind of the brother sibling figure almost when he's having positive interactions with Eleanor that is yeah which is something I think they did really well with the Netflix adaptation where yes they drew that out and actually made them into this family mm-hmm. um I remember when I first watched it and as each name of the kids popped up I was like <gasps> genius brilliant I mean yeah yeah <laughs> the way that they incorporated like actual text from the book into that show was amazing to me and like I get that people are mad that it's not like a you know faithful text to screen adaptation but I think if you go in appreciating it as its own thing then it's beautiful unless by the time they were doing it the whole sort of um investigate investigating the hauntings idea has almost to a point been played out like it needs to be left out to the side for a bit mm-hmm. yes I would agree especially considering you know you've got all the reality shows about it um you know and the, the way the technology has evolved from when you had that in you know in when the original film even was done um it feels like it would be quite convoluted to try and modernize that particular aspect of the book without it coming across as almost a parody of a genre that Haunton Phil House kind of kickstarted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that the haunt, like investigate this haunted house trope has, if you do see it outside of reality TV, it's typically either a found footage type thing mm-hmm. or it's going to be a parody. So you get one or the other. I don't really see too, too many other than that these days. Yeah, I think a lot of the times these days, if the house is an integral part of the setting, the haunting is less literal these days and more metaphorical. Like, we have less, you know, ghosts and demons popping out from behind quarters and more main characters going insane as, like, their personal problems are manifesting in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what happens to Ellen well almost seems to be what happens to Eleanor in the book oh yes absolutely and I when shortly before I watched the series because my dad and I watched the series in lockdown um going into lockdown I actually had like a trap nerve or something in my neck and it, <laughs> it was there for like months yeah so I was watching it with my neck bent oh no like trying to keep it from straining and stuff and that one episode towards the end I was just like oh brilliant look yeah. look what's happening to Nell now while I'm sitting here with my neck bent like this <laughs> <laughs> just just a little bit of a parallel there just a little bit yeah that was one thing though that they did change from the book to the Netflix series was Nell is either straight or she doesn't have her sexually sexuality really explored as much um that's all seems to fall on theo 
with yeah. that. Definitely. And I would, um, like, Nell in the show is definitely traumatized, but she doesn't have the same kind of trauma as Eleanor in the book, which is that uh, repressive mother. You know, she had a terrible relationship with her mother. They did not really like each other. No. So when her mother dies, she's like, oh, I'm a 30-something-year-old woman getting to do something independent for the first time in my life. Um, and she has, she's very socially awkward, and she, she, you know, she'll say things to the other characters, and then later in the chapter, she'll be, like, so hard on herself, like, oh, why'd you say that? That was so stupid. And she, she seems like she feels like representations of herself are unfaithful. She's definitely a unreliable narrator because she there's this chunk of um, internal monologue from her where she basically says that, like, I don't feel like I am real when I am talking. I feel like my thoughts don't come out as the words that I say. And I don't I feel like the self that I am showing to these other people is not real. It's like some fabrication and I'm embarrassing myself. Yeah, she's almost dissociating when she does mm. that. And I kind of got the impression when I read this book, and I've read it a few times. I haven't read it terribly recently, but I do have a copy on my shelf. So just in case, maybe after this, I'll pick it up again. Oh, yeah. But I got I got the impression that there's mental illness that runs in the family almost, mm-hmm. and that the mom and Nell kind of have it and yeah now maybe has it worse but because they're so secretive they're so isolated it just is allowed to manifest and grow and now all of a sudden she's out in reality and it's just like too much and it causes that dissociation with her yes there is um in my favorite edition of the book which is the penguin horror um edition there is a fantastic essay at the beginning by Guillermo del Toro. It's at the beginning of all of them. But specifically uh, in that essay, he talks about Hill House as not just a, it's not just a haunted house. It's a character. It's a monster. It's the Lamia. It preys on the people that come inside of it and it traps them. And it is, most powerful when it is trapping someone like Eleanor who is lonely and vulnerable and just wants to be loved. Do I have that copy? I don't think I have that copy. I think I have an older copy that does not have that essay. So now I'm going to have to seek it out. (laughs) Go buy another copy. Yeah, they did. uh, They did Frankenstein. uh, Hill House. And a few others, I don't remember, that got, like, special, like, covers and splayed black edges, and they're gorgeous. Okay, yeah, mine is definitely, I'm looking at it on my shelf, it is definitely an older version. Probably picked it up at a library book sale one year. Hmm. But one thing I do want to bring up, because when I saw this topic... And I think I might be the only fan of the movie version from the late 90s. Um, I do want to talk about how they adapted that movie. Oh, the one with Owen Wilson? Yes. Yeah, that's that's actually an adaptation of an older movie. Um, 
called The Haunting from like 1963. Yes. I want to say. Correct. Um, it yeah, I actually haven't seen it, so you go off. <laughs> it's very interesting because it is that movie from 1963, but then it also is pulling in a lot of elements from the book. So at some point, is it a remake or is it just a complete reimagining and blend of two different stories? And I think that's why it's such a mess, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. Have, have you seen it, Al? I've seen the 63 one, not the 99 one. Though I have okay. seen Scary Movie 2. If I remember okay. right, just from like watching the trailer, the house is a lot more violent in its oh, haunting in that movie. It is exceptionally violent. It is overly gothic in its structure. It's like, who would have a house that has an entryway that's four stories tall? Yeah. <laughs> why, why is there a clock with a lion head pendulum that is big enough to swipe off Owen Wilson's head? Like, there are many questions with this movie, but it makes it, it it does make for just, like, a very interesting, what's the word? It's like a time capsule for the late 90s when they were trying to adapt things and trying to make something new, but not fully understanding the source material of anything. Yeah. Yeah. And hilarious like I didn't know that Hugh Crane was a Scooby-Doo villain when he was building this house but apparently he was (laughs) evidently he really was um but one thing that the movie does kind of go into is that relationship between Theo and Nell because Mm -hmm. Theo is played by Catherine Mm Zeta-Jones and so she's very much toned down from the book counterpart yeah and but she's so i guess the best way of putting it is that she's still pushing nell but she becomes almost a protective sister figure less so a foil interesting and their dynamic is just it's different and also for those of you who have not seen this movie liam neeson's in it (laughs) um Catherine Zander-Jones, Owen Wilson, and then we have Lily Taylor as Nell. I enjoy telling people that there's only uh, three degrees of separation between Shirley Jackson and Owen Wilson. Ooh, bring it. How does that work? So Shirley Jackson wrote The Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House was adapted into The Haunting, uh, and then there was the remake of The Haunting. Oh, so that's how okay, yeah. I see how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. Oh, and by the way, um, in case you were wondering, there are ghosts in this house, too, in the movie. Okay. This movie is batshit. <laughs> I will need to watch it. Like, I watched the trailer because I was curious, but I've never actually seen it. I, I'm all about batshit movies. Elle sometimes hears me screaming about really strange ones that make no sense, but I love them anyway. This is one of those. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. That and um, the, um, oh, God, 13 Ghosts. Those two. I was just thinking of 13 Ghosts. Like, there was that kind of late 90s, early noughties sort of ghost horror trend of, 
Let's do ghosts, but make them. I don't know. Let's make make them extra violent and loud and. Yeah. And yeah, that's what that's definitely where the haunting fell into that bucket at the time. It's so fascinating because it's such a deviation from the very like subtle atmospheric horror of the book. Yeah. Which at some point I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't talk about Shirley Jackson herself. Um, yeah. But if you guys have like questions planned in a certain order, we can totally do that. Oh no. No, no, that's fine. Go wild. Okay, so in my school of analysis, I'm of the unpopular opinion that you cannot separate art from artist. Uh, and this is especially so to me with Shirley Jackson. Uh, you know, they're having read her biography, it becomes immediately apparent why she wrote the things that she did. She had a one, she had a terrible relationship with her mother. Her mother was always just mean to her you know whether it was about her weight or was about her parenting or her husband she um was not the daughter that her mother wanted which is why a lot of her characters are often motherless either to their detriment or to their benefit like you have um Eleanor, who was traumatized by her mother uh and then you have Maricat, who was also traumatized by her mother but her mother dying I guess for both of them, their mother dying was a kind of freedom. Uh, So yeah, her characters are all motherless or have terrible mothers. Uh, And she also kind of flips the subgenre of female gothic on its head by normally female female gothic is very concerned with matters of like, uh, you know, domestic matters like fears over marriage and love and children And Shirley Jackson does that, but she turns it on his head by making all of her heroines either dead, mad, or dying by the end. And I, yeah, I think this is very, very much linked to her actual life. She wrote for the 1950s housewife who was trapped in in, in a big house with many kids and a loveless marriage. Like, that was her audience, and that's who she was. She she loved being a mother, but her husband was chronically unfaithful and was her worst critic. They had a very intellectual marriage, but not a very, like, fulfilling one. Um, and she later in life developed agoraphobia to the point where she rarely left the house. So, you know, she was trapped in this huge house. They were renting, by the way. In, like, the 1940s, they had, like, a six-bedroom house that they were just renting on the salary of two writers. Which I think is insane. That That is insane. I'm trying to, like, wrap my head around that. Yeah, and the funny, like, Shirley Jackson was the breadwinner of the marriage, which also often caused a lot of strain between them. Like, Stanley Hyman was a professor at the university nearby, but he didn't make that much money. Like, Shirley was the one who brought in the money because she was constantly selling short stories that makes a lot of sense yeah they had this huge house she had I think four kids and you know while she loved them to death uh she originally was a writer of domestic fiction she wrote short uh you know humorous 
uh, kind of still bordering on horror stories that were just, you know, stories about her family, about her being a mother. Um, so when she started writing horror, that origin story of hers is very evident. And of course, um, her either grandfather or great grandfather was the, was the guy who was building mega mansions in San Francisco for the wealthy elite. So it's like this girl has haunted houses in her blood. Yeah, and I think I, I think that's one thing that when people discuss separating the art from the artist, like it's you can to a point, but it's, it's experiences that influence what people write. Um, I think I think you are right I think obviously everything she's experienced and her own way of looking at the world world heavily influenced things like Hill House the lottery um probably the two her two most famous works yeah like I think everyone's read the lottery that's what I tell people when they're like who's Shirley Jackson or like you know that short that horrible short story you were forced to read in high school <laughs> mm-hmm. that one yeah, we didn't have that over here. Um, so I know obviously a lot of Americans would have read it in high school. Um, it was never like on the sort of course curriculum for us. Yeah, makes sense. Um, she was American. So I I have read it online um, and I've listened to the, because it's the, ah, uh, what's the newspaper that's got it? Um they have it on uh, free. The New Yorker. Yes. And they got a fiction podcast. Oh, yeah, that one. I've heard it done through that as well. Um, Back in the days, which, yeah, they it's, still sell short stories. And make a living, yeah. yeah. Yeah, make a living. Like, that's just, I, like, that's the most horrible part about, or the most terrifying part about this is that I can't just, you know, get an agent and sell short stories. It's got to be like, no, you're selling a novel or you're selling a collection of short stories. Like, like my first publication was in a short story anthology, but I didn't get paid for that. That was for charity. Like, I'm still insanely grateful, but. Yeah, the first anthology I was in was um, a free charity one. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still over the moon when I had a copy of that in my hand. I know, it's like, I I have a story of this, it's in my hand, it's in independent bookstores somewhere, I know, not in my state, but somewhere. Yes. I am the exception here, because my first one was the woman built by man. Oh. So, yeah, no charity one for me. I'm just late to the game. Yeah, that's okay. It's never too late to join. Yeah. Um, I'm just going through. Um, I think it's interesting as well that the her inspiration for it, um, after she read about the group 19th century psychic researchers, but it was one of the houses that she used. Um, well, she found a picture, sorry, of a house in California mm-hmm. and used it as inspiration, only to find out that it was her great 
great grandfather who built it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. That so, is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's it's a funny coincidence, isn't it, when things like that happen? Yeah, she serendipitous coincidence. Yeah, her she relocated to New England when she was a teenager, I believe. Her family packed up and moved there, but before then, yeah, they were uh not like quite wealthy elite, but they were still wealthy uh in California. Um Yeah. Like in I guess correct term she technically married down by marrying stanley yeah should we talk about the house about hill house i mean i love talking about houses so let's talk about this house yeah my favorite thing about the haunting of hill house is well the haunting of hill house Because it's not, yeah, like we talked about before, like, it's not a house that is plagued by, you know, ghosts or demons or poltergeists. It is a house that is haunted for its wanting. Like, it was built by Hugh Crane, who was this, like, abusive religious zealot who built the house with the intention of it housing his descendants forever. And so when he dies and neither of his daughters get the house... The house is just left wanting with this purpose that it can't fulfill because there's no one to take care of. Um, So that when, first of all, when the, um, I'm blanking on Luke's last name in the book. Um, (laughs) It is Sanderson. Sanderson, yeah. When the Sanderson family uh, buys it, I don't believe they actually ever live in it. Um, but then the investigators come and it's like, oh, all of a sudden I have things to take care of again. Uh, and it is just like like Guillermo del Toro says in the essay, the house is a creature. It is a predator. It seeks out people who are lonely and vulnerable and strips away all outside influences, all outside love until it is the only thing that can take care of that person. And a lot of the common criticism that I read when I was writing my thesis was reading The House as a Mother, which, like, is totally a fine perspective. Like, I don't like Freud, but I do like psychoanalysis. Um, But I read Hill House as a Lover. Because, like, what is the repeating motif that Eleanor has throughout the whole book? It's journeys end in lovers meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that toxic lover that oh yeah that you uh find yourself partnered with and then you're like uh this is bad yeah Eleanor has these domestic fantasies that she's created with the other characters like she doesn't realize that they are also she thinks she's the only one in the room who has flaws at first She's like, oh, no, these these other people are perfect. And I'm going to have this domestic fantasy where I get to live with Theodora. And, you know, the the good the, like the good doctor and Luke will come over for tea in our cute little apartment. And it's only when they start having disagreements and arguments. And, you know, Theodora makes those nasty remarks to her that the bubble kind of pops in 
it's it's more about Theodora's insecurities than her ability to recognize the others as flawed human beings. Because it's very much just as soon as they don't react to her fantasies as she thinks they're supposed to, she is kind of like withdrawing and feeling insecure about herself. And that's when the house is like, oh, it's my turn. Yeah. And it is, like you said, that abusive lover and latching on to someone who is is going to be easy to kind of draw in with with her own loneliness, her own insecurities and vulnerabilities. Yes, because those types always look for someone who is insecure or weak in a certain way, because that yeah. makes for easier prey, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I read I read somewhere that Eleanor is a fairy tale character stuck in a gothic story. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's really good. And even something like the Cup of Stars is it's quite fairy tale-ish. Like it's something you can imagine a witch having or you know, being a, a goal at the end. Mm-hmm. Um I love I love the Cup of Stars. Yeah, the difference but she's definitely not Giselle from Enchanted. No. <laughs> Far um, from. She doesn't get to have a happy ending, unfortunately. She gets to, you know, only realize at the last second that crashing her car into a tree so she doesn't have to leave her lover is maybe not the best idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I had read ages ago I think it was right before the Netflix series came out where people were being not not critical, but they were guessing what the series was going to be like and they hadn't seen the screeners yet. There was an article about someone saying that Nell has telekinetic abilities that the house exploits. And I was like, is that a thing? I, yeah. I didn't really explore that angle. I know that that is mentioned in the book of like the reason why Dr. Montague invited her to join was because of that thing that happened in her childhood where her like sister and her, no, it was the neighbors had been terrorizing them. And then like a bunch of stones fell on their house. And the implication is that Eleanor did that, like made that happen. Oh, see, like, when I read that part, I had been under the impression that it was something Nell had, like, physically done somehow, not necessarily Mm. telekinetic, because coming from a family with some very wild cousins, that is something they would do. I think she's in the house when it happens, though, isn't she? Yeah. And also, she was, if I remember right, pretty small when that happened mm-hmm. true yeah and it's uh, I can't remember what it is but Theo has a similar experience doesn't she that's why she's applied yes. well that's why she's selected for this as well because of what she's yeah. experienced in her past Theo has this slight like telepathic like empath abilities where they like put her in a room and were like guess guess what card I'm holding up and she guessed right like nine out of ten times or something yeah yeah and I thought that was interesting because one way the adaptation 
the adaptations could have gone with Theo was more of a almost like a fortune teller angle, but they never actually go with that. They tend to go for more the literal empath or in the, yeah. in this in the show, um, the touch thing that Theo has. Mm-hmm. But it would be almost she, interesting if she was a fortune teller type. Her power, like her ability in the show, I think as it relates to her character is still very much about boundaries and Nell's lack thereof, which we also see in the book. Like Theodore has boundaries and Eleanor has none. (laughs) She does not understand boundaries. No. Because her mom raised her without any, really. And whenever her mom got really sick and Nell was at her beck and call, I mean, she had nothing that she could put down like lay the line down because that was unacceptable yeah exactly and there's something very very sad about that too because having boundaries is an intrinsic part of personalities and autonomy and she just does not have any right to the end yes the well actually i'm gonna slightly disagree with you there I think that a very important part of the story and in the haunting is Eleanor's choice to be with Hill House because there is a certain point once she has experienced enough rejection in her mind from the other members of the group that she fully leans into Hill House's influence And, like, that is a choice. Like, yes, it is the choice of someone who is mentally ill and has never had experienced much love in her life, but it's still, like, a choice that she made. All right, I can agree with you there and see that. I I think the fact... Yeah. Oh, no, are you okay? I'm good. I just leaned over too far. Yeah, I don't think that Hill House has the power to kill, so to speak. Like, there are only two deaths on the property before the, before the like, canonical events of the novel. And it's Hugh Crane's, like, two unnamed wives. You yeah. don't even die, like, in the house. They die, like, on property. Um, so I don't think that unless Eleanor had made that choice to, you know, crash her car and ostensibly kill herself, that the house would have been able to keep her. Oh, that's true. Even in, it's, it drives her to do that rather than, you know, being a physical act that the house commits. Yeah, we can certainly say that she was under some spell, um, like, of the house or of the house's attention, but she's very obsessive about it. She says, like, oh, I gotta find the line in the book because it's a good line, but she (laughs) talks about how, like, the others aren't going to separate her from Hill House. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... As the book goes on as well, it's it's interesting how the relationships between basically those three and Eleanor break down 
like mm-hmm. the, they're all feeling like a different type of strain in the house yes um, I, I found it yeah um she says i am going journeys end in lovers meeting but i won't go she thought and laughed aloud to herself hill house is not as easy as they are just by telling me to go away they can't make me leave not if hill house means me to stay uh, yeah, that's a good line. I think it's they also are... sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I've interrupted you twice. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was no, I was just gonna say it's in like they try and save her from herself. They do. They yeah. Yeah. Do know what is happening. They do realize that there is something not quite right, and. It's like them trying to process what exactly the problem is and then trying to help within their skill sets. But unfortunately, it's gone beyond them in many yeah, ways. Yeah, and you know, there's no way that Eleanor is going to take that. That, like, they can say it's for your own good as many times as they want, but she's going to hear it as a personal attack and as, like, them trying to separate her from Hill House. Because, like, Reality-wise, I think the very important thing about Eleanor's character and why she, again, is such easy prey for Hill House is that there's nothing for her in the outside world. You know, once that, like, domestic fantasy of her going to live with Theodora is shattered, she's once again confronted with the reality that she is, like, a 30-something-year-old woman with no, like, college or vocation training except for, like, maybe some nursing skills her family doesn't like her. She has no friends. She is, you know, she's tried to figure herself out. And the only part of herself that she seems to like is who she is when she's with Hill House. Yes. She she steals the car, doesn't she, from her sister? Yes, she does. Yes, she does. Yeah. And also, just in the context of when the story was being written... The it's for your own good and that commanding type of way of speaking was very, very common, especially towards women. Yes, absolutely. Just from the brief encounter we get with her sister, it was her sister, right? Or it wasn't her brother. It was her sister. It was her sister and her uh, brother-in-law. Yes. Just from that brief encounter we get with them it really seems like she's been told her whole life, like, this is for the best, this is what's good for you, et cetera, et cetera. And them just echoing that later on in the story from these people who, by all means, don't know her that well, might just have been the final straw. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did want to speak a little bit about the Dudleys, because I find them interesting yeah yeah they are they're just so such interesting characters because they are as much a part of the house as the house itself Mm -hmm. and they kind of I, i hesitate to call them like they're in the background but in many ways they are kind of ever present ever lurking in the in just the periphery which is very much a gothic trope you know you have the 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 lighthouse keeper who tries to warn you away from the house because they know it's haunted and dangerous so you have like 
there's always someone who is kind of like our point of entry into the story, almost not in the literal term, because that's not, I know that's not a correct application of the term, but who are giving us information about the house that the main characters are, of course, going to ignore uh, and only realize that you only realize that the Dudleys were right, like, what, halfway through the book? Something like that, yeah. 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 And I mean, I also, they, yeah. they start with warning, right? I believe their yeah. first intro is just that warning. Yeah, like, Mr. Dudley standing behind the gate, like, if you, if you can come in, but it, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. Not a good idea. And they're like, oh, you're just a stupid old caretaker, or however old he is. I don't think their ages are mentioned in the book. No, I don't think so either. Um, but they're just like, okay, man, you don't know what's good for you. You don't know anything, so I'm just going to go in, because I am the smart person. Um, I kind of got the impression that they're, like, middle, late middle ages. Yeah. I really like how they did the Dudleys in the show. Yeah. I love them. Mm-hmm. And also, she, like, in the book, Mrs. Dudley is almost kind of a little bit of comic relief because she, like, her eccentricities inspire conversations between the characters where, like, you know, they'll get a set of instructions from Mrs. Dudley and then other characters arrive and are receiving those same set of instructions. And uh, I think there's, I think there's a scene where, uh, I think it's Theodora that goes, oh, yes, and, you know, if we if we start crying in the night, she's not going to come help us. Yes. Oh, yeah, those repetitive warnings that are also now a trope, and we even see them played upon in a lot of horror movies today, like uh, oh, yeah. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, like just some guy being like, this house is bad, and if anything happens, I'm not going to come risk my own skin to come save you. And the main character is like, what, guy? You're crazy. I'm not actually going to need your help. But the way they did them in the show was so sympathetic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really felt for Mrs. Dudley in the show. Yeah. Like, because... and I think... Mm-hmm. I think the reason... Like, I think the thing that helped that was that they still had a living child in the show. So they were still, they weren't quite the, you know, uh, callous and kind of sometimes mean versions of the Dudleys in the books. Because they, in the show, they have a kid. Like, they still have a reason to be kind, even if they are cautious. Yeah. That whole storyline as well is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I cried first time I yeah. watched that. Honestly, Hill House makes me cry each time I rewatch it. The Hunting. Oh, yeah. Hill House. Like, like, I'm, oh, I'm blanking on his first name. Mike. Mike Flanagan is a genius. I, um, like, we could do a whole other episode about Turn of the Screw and uh, The Haunting of Blind Manor. Cause yes. Because I'm bald. We will do that because I absolutely love Turn of the Screw and I absolutely yeah. loved Blind Manor. Same. Because mm-hmm. um, we did, when I was at university, we did The Innocents. The oh, film. yeah. And 
um, one of my friends who was doing English, they were doing Turn of the Screw. Mm. So they lent it to me and I read it and uh, just after seeing The Innocence and it was it was really interesting and the conversations you can get out of that that one book is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and The Innocence, the movie is I would say one of the best of that decade in terms of just how they did it, how they shot mm-hmm. everything. It was just so every frame is like art. And yeah. it's so surreal. Which yeah. is really just what you want out of a gothic out of a gothic um adaptation because gothic to me the genre is all about atmosphere. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're adapting a gothic book and you don't get like kind of experimental with how you're creating atmosphere, then it's like you just that's a missed opportunity there. Yeah, and there's definitely the parallels with Hill House and Turning the Screw of a the young woman who's come to this place for a reason and then mm-hmm. the kind of question in between is this real is this in her head like the yeah, that kind of ambiguity in the in the story yes i would agree mm-hmm. and adding on another film um which is from a completely different continent australia um, Picnic at Hanging Rock from the 70s has I that. I seen it. Oh, you, I think you would like it. Um, it is about this girl's prep school, this girl's boarding school that goes on a picnic. And a couple of the girls just disappear. Oh, but, okay. But the, but the way it's filmed is so dreamy and ethereal. And it takes place around 1900. That's the setting. So it has like this old meets new quality to it that is kind of like a proto-modern gothic romance, for a lack of a better phrase, that's coming to me right now. Mm-hmm. But it's so sunny and it's not like, it's very open, it's very sunny, it's just very different in atmosphere, but it still has a lot of that same quality where you're like, I'm not sure what's going on and is this rel- a reliable narrator, is it not? You just don't know. It makes me think of um kind of makes me think of mother with um oh shoot, what's the actress's name? Hold oh, on. Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. Just with when you when you said that it's like sunny and bright, that's what I thought of. Um it's like most of that movie is is very bright. Yeah, it's so um, one difference, I think, that why I really like Picnic at Hanging Rock is most of it takes place outside. And so, mm-hmm. like, you're yeah. outdoors, you're in this fairly remote part of Australia. There are these girls who are being, you know, trained to be the best. There's one point that a girl it doesn't have good posture, so they stick her in something that looks like stocks from, like, way back when. Mm-hmm. And I was like... Well, that is a very specific time point that we yeah. used those things. That would have broken me because I have back problems. Um, but it, I just really like that it still has that atmosphere, but it adds, is that, adds that specific Aussie twist to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't, Hill, I don't have to watch that. Yeah, like Hill House has kind of like that 
I don't know exactly where Hill House is supposed to be. I would say it's probably the same vague area as the rest of her stories, which is New England. Yeah, I was going to say it feels New England. Mm -hmm. And New England is very, it can be very sunny, but most of the time it's like a little bit cloudy and a little bit kind of dreary. And that is very American Gothic, for lack of a better term. And then you have things like Turn of the Screw with all these like big manors that are in the countryside. And that's like a different aspect. So it's very interesting to me to see how these um, interpretations can change from continent to continent. Yeah. And like at the beginning of Hill House, you have that whole couple of chapters where Eleanor is just driving and then she, you know, gets to this small town where, which is a very American thing, I think, to have a character stop in a small town before they go somewhere horrible. And also a very Jackson thing. Jackson uh, lived in a very small town and was obsessed with writing about the, like, she took, like, small town gossip and small town behaviors and turned them into horror, which I love. But yeah, you have this scene where she stops in this small town, stops in this diner where very clearly she's an outsider but she doesn't seem to mind it and she's trying to ask these questions about Hill House and the teenager behind the counter is like I don't know you like I'll give you your coffee and like try to answer your questions but I don't know you that is a very American thing because at that time was when the highway system was really starting to get built up Mm mm-hmm And so going for a long drive and stopping where there's like a tiny town with like a little gas station, that was like the thing. Um, And a lot of towns built up according to that highway system. So it makes sense that that would be a part of this story. Yeah, just long stretches of nothing interesting because this country is so big. Yep, although our long stretches are nothing compared to the middle of Australia. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, you want a ranch that's as big as Belgium? Here you go. You're on it still. That's insane. That's not, that's about Australia. And she's like the opposite to here, where you can't really go 10 minutes on the road without coming across a turn off or a town, at least, if you're on the motorway. Yeah, yeah, what's the the saying like Europe is old and America is big? Yeah, um, where it's like uh, people in the UK will be like, "Oh, it was such a long drive. It was like thirty minutes." And people in America are like, "That's my commute to work every day." <laughs> oh yeah, if we go like an hour and a half somewhere, that's a that's either a day trip or like a break. Um, but we also can't fly. Like, to many places domestically. Yeah. You kind of have to to drive, or I guess you guys have a pretty good bus system? Yeah, the public transport's not, like, it's got its issues. But, I mean, there's someone at the moment who a few days ago started doing, to get from London to Scotland, I think, only using £2 tickets on buses. Oh, wow. Wow. if you're traveling in lo- a local area, it's two pounds a ticket. 
So she's doing that and going, working her way north, going from bus to bus. So yeah, I took... Oh, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, my uh, high school graduation present was a trip to the UK, and we took a train, like a, a three-hour train or something, from London to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I went to university, I'm in Cardiff, which is South Wales, and I went to university in Hull, which is North England. Um, the best way to describe it is basically it's Winterfell, because um, <laughs> of where it's located. And it used to take, by car, it's about four and a half hours, but the train could take between five and seven hours, depending oh, yeah. on how much the tickets were and what sort of routes were running and stuff and if I I think when I went to see my brother in Margate I got a coat down um because of delays and getting stuck and the coach breaking down it's, Margate is pretty much across the country from here mm-hmm. um so, so it's east coast of England you just drive straight across it took me about 12 hours <laughs> Jesus yeah, on the coach. It was and then on the way back things were delayed and stopped as well. So I got stuck. Um both times I basically missed my connecting coach in London. And so both times it took me about twelve hours from door to door. That's yeah, and I just I just looked that up. It's about two hundred and thirty miles between wow. Margate and where you are L. Yeah, so when my dad drives us down, um it's about Four hours. If we that don't sounds stop. about right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so bad. But yeah, on coach, it was it was a nightmare. I I got down there. I was like, I'm not getting the coach down to you guys again. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's that's how America is too, though, with like those long haul buses like Mega Bus, Greyhound, and then Amtrak. Like, if I was gonna go from where I am to Chicago, I can drive to Chicago in about I want to say it's about six or seven hours for me. But if I take Amtrak, I'm looking at, like, a 24-hour trip. Yeah, like, yeah. I someday want to do the Greyhound from, like, California to Washington because I've heard the route is really pretty. But, yeah, that would be – it's, like, a three-day trip versus, a like, a nine-hour drive. Yeah, I had a client who um, did the Amtrak across the country. Mm. Um, She loved it. But she was also like, there are points where, like, you're in the Skyview car and, like, all you see around you is, like, nothing. It's flat. All you see are stars. And she was like, it was amazing, but also, holy shit. Yeah. It's amazing. And I would love to do that, but uh, time is probably going to be the issue there. I'd have to get, like, a better coach so I can actually sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. I think she just did the generic um, the generic Amtrak ticket, which is very, very cheap, but you do not get to lay down. No, like, I, 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 I want to lay down. Yes, laying down is good. But, um, Al, one thing I wanted to ask, and maybe you could elaborate on a little bit, is that isolation of small towns in the UK. Because, obviously, in America, mm. we have that geographic isolation, but how does that work over where you're at? It's more... Like, due to lack of public transport is basically what makes them isolated. So 
if you can drive, you can probably get in and out easier-ish. Um, but it's stuff like, if you look at North Wales, there's no train that goes directly from South Wales to North Wales. It has to go out of the country into England, travel up and then come back. But if you're driving, it would take something like three and a half to five hours. Hmm. So a lot of the sort of more isolated places are, are basically because they don't have public, reliable public transport running to and from. Um, or like, yeah, I'm trying to think because I, I, there's only a few times where I've been to sort of proper villages in the countryside. They might have a train station, but you'd get in a tiny little rickety train to get there from the nearest city or big town. Now that I think about it, we actually have a similar scene in Hill House, um, the book to Bly Manor, the um, Netflix show, where you have Danny going on that long drive from London to Bly Manor. And she, like it's so long that she falls asleep. Yeah. So that would kind of be, that would probably be going up the motorway from London and then turning off onto like sidewinding roads. And um, so like when we've gone up to the Brecon Beacons in Wales, you, when you're driving back down, if you go a certain way, you're basically driving on the top of mountains. Oh, wow. Yeah, because of the valleys. Um, yeah. The, the main roads from to and from are like, you are just right. Like if you look down, you can see a sheer drop. Yep. That's, um, I grew up in a valley, so some noise on your end, Reggie. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I grew up in a valley, and so going from southern Oregon to Portland, there's a certain Mm -hmm. time of year where you can't really do that because there's so much snow in the mountains that it is just too dangerous because it is, again, that, like, driving through a mountain sheer drop on the other side um like there's a certain time of year where you can't really make that happen yeah so when um before we moved in together I was living down here my boyfriend was up in one of the Welsh valleys my dad was driving me up it would take about 45 minutes door to door um and getting the train up was an hour and a half door to door so walking up there as well but that is like the houses are, I mean you probably know yourself the houses are built into the valley side oh wow uh, yeah have to be like like the stairs if you go into valley's house the stairs the first time I walked into his I just looked at the stairs and I was like I do not want to be going up and down men drunk no <laughs> that's what we have here too though Ella's seen yeah. pictures of my city and we have a lot built into the hillsides and mountainsides and I think the stairs up to my friend's house she has 42 stairs to go from the garage up to her house oh yeah. my god and yeah I mean like when she had knee surgery it was very hard for her to get up those stairs because there's I literally no other way to get up it. but 
yeah, that was interesting about the isolation, though, because in the States, we have both that public transport problem, but then also just that geographic broadness. So you might have yeah. towns that are like smack dab in the middle of a state and the nearest city, which is over 100,000 people, so barely a city, really, is yeah. like four hours away. Yeah, Shirley Jackson lived in or near Bennington, Vermont, I think, which was a college town, but Bennington College is very small. Like, it's a small liberal arts college. It's very eccentric. Um, And she, you know, was a faculty wife, quote unquote, but she didn't like being a faculty wife. And she, especially when she started, like, gaining popularity as a writer there came a lot of rumors about her not just from the town that she lived in but more abroad um you know the popular opinion of Shirley Jackson at one point after the lottery was uh published was that she was a devil worshiping baby sacrificing witch (laughs) and she loved it like, she fully leaned into the rumor. She's like, yes, I'm a witch. I cast spells on your children. Um, but also, she found it very isolating, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of what contributed to her agoraphobia. It's like, she was writing about these nasty small towns, and it was very much from personal experience. Yeah. She, most of her, because, I like, I read, I think she has an excellent biography called A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. Um, And in that biography, Franklin uh, writes about how most of Shirley Jackson's friends were like her pen pals that were like fans who wrote to her and she struck up relationships with. Like she didn't have very many friends like in the real world, quote unquote. She was ahead of her time. Yes, she, she, yes, exactly. She really was. She would have loved Twitter. One of her, what? She would have loved Twitter. Oh, yes. If I could give one historical figure Twitter, it would be her. <laughs> uh, one of her dearest friends was a French socialist who got, like, in trouble politically and couldn't write to her for a time because she was like, I'm trying to avoid prison. <laughs> Amazing. That sounds like a great friend to have. Uh-huh. Uh, um, so before we wrap up then is there anything else you want to add about the book or or the series I mean I could talk about it for hours but if there's anything you guys are specifically curious about um, trying to think uh, so what, what was your favourite sort of s- scene or bit in the TV series then like the, the really standout thing for you I think it would have to be the scene of Eleanor dancing, like, when when the audience sees that she's, like, dancing with, you know, her dead husband and her family, and it's like, we know that that's not real. But I think the favorite thing for me is the moment where she realizes it's not real. Mm-hmm. When, like, we see her dancing alone in Hill House, and then she is, you know, up on the balcony with her mom. It's very... Um, very much like the scene I think in the book at the yeah. very end in that moment before she crashes her car into the tree where she realizes like this was a dream and the dream has ended yeah and 
reading the book, the, the that staircase really always stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the way like the mum keeps warning them away from it in the TV series. I was so excited to see how it would play into everything, knowing what I knew from the book, where she almost does jump off there. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, so I was really when I saw that bit and how they worked that in, I just I love the way they take those different elements from the books and kind of amend it very slightly to put it in the TV series. Yeah, like I'm scared to death of spiral staircases. Like I'm yeah. already a clumsy person. I don't want a spiral staircase. Um, yeah. see, I love them. I hate I them. I love the look of them. I think I would die if I had one in my house. Yeah, I've been to places with them, um, like historical sites or whatever, and when you step on it, and if it's a wet day and you can just feel it slippery and it shakes mm-hmm. a little bit, I'm like, no, no, not doing this right now. Yeah, I would have to say my favorite scene from the show, just because I want to add on this, is the scene at the funeral where they're yeah. all standing there and then you see Ghost Nell in the back. Yes. Yeah. And then I, it keeps going, the camera. Like, it's you just see it and it's gone. I was here the whole time. Yeah, exactly. heartbreaking. My favorite thing about that episode, or might have been the episode before, it was one of the funeral episodes, is that they filmed it in one take. Oh, that was that episode, and I believe it was two takes, actually, because they had to have a cut at one point. And oh, I can't rem- did they? I can't remember where the cut was, but there was something very specific that they tried to do in one, and it wasn't working. I'll have to go watch the video again, because... I'm interested. But yeah, the part where they were like, yeah, someone would have to go and grab the kids because they couldn't get off scene fast enough. Oh, yeah. The kids are trying. Come on. Yeah. But I did love how that funeral home opened up and now you're in the house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The actress who plays Nell is so good at that kind of heartbreaking. Victoria Pedretti. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, she's amazing. And the thing that always stands out to me is is the end as well. We're all made of confetti. Yeah. Mm. I was sobbing so hard when all of that Did you was notice going how they had um oh shoot like Hannah in Blind Manor, she says at the end, I think it's at the end where she is like starting to realize that she's dead. Um yeah. she goes, We're all made of and then trails off. And Mike Flanagan was like, yeah, we wanted to have her say confetti. We were like, no, it's better if we cut it there. Yeah. Can we just talk about how Mike Flanagan was such a perfect director for this? Because him and Doors, like, he's got something with Doors. And in the book, I think Doors are also a big thing because you have, because they established that because of the angle the Hill House is built on that, like, it's impossible to keep the doors open, but it does contribute to that, like, labyrinthine, like, maze-like quality of the house. Yeah, and I'm, it makes me really excited to see his House of Usher. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. Oh, that's going to mm-hmm. be so good. Also, um, totally fun fact, my house is also built into a uh, hill, and uh, the doors also don't stay closed. Well, if you see your name on the wall, maybe you should move out. 
Okay, um, it's either that or my partner has decided to play a prank on me, one of the two. <laughs> it's okay, for some reason, very often when names are written on walls, it is my name. Yeah, yeah. you know, I have an unusual enough name that um, it's either a ghost or my partner. I only have yeah. two choices. It's, um, I was, when I was playing Bioshock 2, and you turn into a corner and it's her name in that is Eleanor and you just see scrawled across the wall like Eleanor will save us I was like oh really I was at home alone at the time as well I was like oh this is great yeah and I, I think really have that problem I think it's American Haunting I went to see it in the cinema when it first came out and there's a character in that called Eleanor and there's one bit where it was I won the first dates I ever went on he went to the toilet and then I, we were right next to the speakers as well. So all I could hear was this whispering of my name going, Eleanor. Oh, God. Well, I was like, uh, I don't like this. <laughs> Fair, though. Yeah. I wouldn't like that I, either. People are naming their babies and their dogs Juniper, but I've met very few other, like, adult Junipers. I've not actually known many people, like, at school or university called... Eleanor or Eleanor um there was a couple in my course at uni but outside of that like not a single one was in school just I don't know if it's becoming more popular though because it's one of those old-fashioned names that seems to pick up now and then mm-hmm. I have an old name too and I was at the doctor on Friday and the uh tech checking me in commented on how old my name was I don't think I don't think your and name I was like I'm sorry my full name, it sounds rather old-fashioned. It just makes me think of Once Upon a Time. Well, that's because Once Upon a Time has a badass, Regina. Yeah. <laughs> except, I, except I got Reggie from Charade with Audrey Hepburn. So. Okay. It could also be Regina from Mean Girls. I yes. have gotten that before, and I did actually yeah. live with someone whose last name was George. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we were unintentionally mean girls. Excellent. But other than that, there's really not too many. The one I usually get is um, E.T. when people realise that. Oh. Or Mm. uh, Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. 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 I think of Eleanor Vance. Yes. (laughs) One of the best ones. Um, Perhaps. Okay. Fab. Um. So thank you very much for uh, joining us. This has been great. Um, yeah. Where can people find you on the internet? So let me pull up my Twitter because that's where I'm most active. My like professional writing Twitter is JM Sedlock Writes. Okay, brilliant. Um, so yeah. Make sure you go follow JM. Um, obviously, on, we're on Twitter at EsbatBookish. We're also now on TikTok, YouTube. Um, so, yeah, just follow us wherever you like. I'm on Twitter at LTurfit. I am sometimes on Twitter, sometimes not at Reggie C. Writes. I am mostly screaming about fandom stuff on Tumblr these days. Um, I also have, if anyone is interested in buying a book that will donate its proceeds to um, 
neural pro-choice America. Um, it's called Mine, an Anthology of Body Autonomy Horror. Um, I have a story in there, and all of the proceeds are going to help fight for abortion rights. Yes, and let's grab that link too, Elle, so we can include it in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, so definitely make sure you pick up a copy of that. And again, uh, thank you so much, JM. It has been brilliant. Yeah, of course. Thank you for indulging me. Of course. Thank you all. All Yeah, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.